Welcome to the 41st episode of the New Ventures podcast. I'm your host, Sanjoy Sanyal, the founder of Regain Paradise, a boutique climate finance firm, and a visiting fellow at the Cambridge Judge Business School. I host the New Ventures podcast to help people starting climate initiatives learn from others who are already progressed in their paths. Today, we keep probing the question of the ecosystem needed to support early stage climate entrepreneurs. And to do that, we have Naveed Chaudhary, co-founder and the head of The Greenhouse, which is an innovation program for early stage pre-seed entrepreneurs building climate smart businesses. Welcome, Naveed. Thanks, Anjoy. It's great to be here. Naveed, let's start Grantham Institute Climate Change and the Environment with a founding partner of Climate KIC, which of course is Europe's main climate innovation practice. And then you started the greenhouse. What motivated you to start the greenhouse and in the crowded space of incubators and accelerators? What sets you apart? Yeah, great question, Sanjoy. The fortunate position of having you know, joined the, the initiative when our innovation activities were part of the Climate Kick initiative. Since then, I've also gone on, obviously, to set up the, the Greenhouse program. In terms of the period with Climate K or Climate KIC, that partnership and initiative began in the early 2012 is when we set up the Accelerator program at Imperial College and the Grantham Institute. That program had been running very consistently until the end of 2020. And at that time, there were changes in the, the funding structure of Climate KIC. As a result, it meant less funding available for programs like ours. We weren't the only one within the Climate KIC family. There was an accelerator in the Netherlands, there was one in Germany, there was one in Scotland, one in Ireland as well, I think, by the end. So there were a number of these dotted around Europe by the time we, we came to the end of 2020, but the direct funding had dissipated by that point. We had a decision at that time. I had been in the role for about a year and a half by that point, and Richard Templer, who I report into, has been here from 2012. He's the Director of Innovation at the Grantham Institute. So we had a decision at that point in terms of the next steps for our own innovation activities. And we decided what the program did primarily in terms of being a, a place for the types of startups that had been on the accelerator could not end. Simply, we had to do what we could to ensure that the, the program continued. The main motivation to do that was simply the impact that it had had on the startups that had been through the program. For us, it fulfilled a unique role within the ecosystem, and it was important that continued. So that was the principal motivation to go away, secure more funding, and redesign the program. We had flexibility because we were entering into a new structure. So we looked at certain elements of the program, changed, and in our view, improved those, and then relaunched effectively as the, as the greenhouse. So in terms of the um, the level of saturation when it comes to incubators and accelerators, Sanjoy, I agree with your general premise in that, yes, I think the London tech ecosystem, tech ecosystem in general, is heavily saturated in terms of these programs at the moment. There isn't an obvious differentiating factor. But when it comes to climate, when I joined the, the program in the middle of 2019, there were very, very few other specialist accelerators within London that were focused on climate change. That has changed since then. So new programs have cropped up. We've seen some venture builders, incubators, and a couple of accelerators come on board. So it's starting to build up. 
but I think we're not at the point of saturation yet in climate. So, you know, there's still room to grow and there's still I think, opportunities for us to create new pathways for climate innovators to get more support. And, you know, what I really liked is the impact that you are creating motivated you to raise funds and, and restart the process, relaunch your incubation services under the greenhouse. Navid, let's understand your process and offering. Sure. So maybe I'll take this question in two parts. In terms of the, the process, I could go into selection and then also into how we deliver the program. So I think the selection process itself is, is interesting and something we have fought long and hard about. Again, this was one of the aspects that we did change following the transition from Climate KIC to the Greenhouse. First and foremost, we have a number of criteria which we bear in mind when it comes to the teams we want to take on board. Unsurprisingly, on the top of that list is the potential climate impact and the relevance of that solution to the climate challenge that we're facing. On that point, we are not specifically thesis-driven beyond that statement at this point. So we're very open to innovators tackling climate mitigation, innovators looking at climate adaptation solutions, innovators looking at broader environmental issues as well. It's not just linked or limited to carbon-related solutions beyond greenhouse gases and other areas of the, the climate challenges that we're facing. We will look at the, the strength and the uniqueness of the innovation and any intellectual property that the team has or has the capacity to create. That is a, a learning of the, the previous decade of work that we've done with our startups, where we see consistently those startups that have deep IP, unique know-how and knowledge inevitably end up being more attractive to investors on the whole, statistically doing better than, than those that don't in the space. But that's not to say we don't accept others, but we, we do have a, you know, an inclination towards those who are strong in this space. We look at their potential to scale and effectively their likelihood of market success. What's their commercial proposition? Will their commercial proposition allow them to scale and, and grow? Are they likely to, to have a significant kind of commercial market impact? Because we're not supporting not-for-profits or philanthropic entities. We're supporting commercial entities. So we want to see that those have the, the ability to scale. And that will obviously allow them to have greater climate impact. And then we will also look at the, the team capability. What are the skills that the team has do they have the skills to actually deliver on the proposition that they are proposing are they the type of team that um you know will have the drive to to actually commit and work to make the, the specific solution work the final criteria if we looked at the the scoring mechanism is their overall suitability for the greenhouse this is a more difficult assessment to make in some cases but we want to ensure that anyone who joins our program will actually get the most out of our program as well. Teams could be too early and in that case not benefit from what we have to offer. Teams could also be too mature for what we're looking to to do and again not benefit in the, the best possible way. So there is a sweet spot where we want to find teams at a certain level of, of maturity, have a certain level of development and focus to actually get the most out of what we're proposing. There's an application form which we have and we invite applicants to complete and you know, we will assess that once the application window's finished. What we do is we'll whittle down the number of applicants to 20 to 25 teams, depending on the quality of applications we receive. And then we will invite those up to 25 teams to a two-day bootcamp. This bootcamp is a factor in, in the selection process. The application form is step one, the bootcamp is step two, and 
we will have up to 25 teams with us at the, the Royal Institution in Mayfair. And the two days are essentially an opportunity for the startups to network. It's an opportunity for them to hopefully learn from us and get feedback. And it's an opportunity for us to learn more about the entrepreneurs, especially in some of the, the softer elements that we look for. Day one largely comprises of networking opportunities for, for the startups. We will run through a business model canvas with them and ask the startups to complete that on day one. We will then spend one-on-one -on -one time with each of the startups, give them feedback based on what they've completed so far. During that process, we will look at things like how credible is the idea, albeit we've assessed that from the application form as well. We will look at, you know, how the entrepreneurs take feedback on board. Are they open-minded? You know, are they willing to listen? Are they humble enough to recognize that they're at the beginning of a potentially long and difficult journey and that there are others out there who could also add value along the way? And are they hungry? Do they want to learn? Do they want to take insights and feedback on board? So it gives us some insight into that mindset of the entrepreneur. We will then also set up peer-to-peer -peer sessions on day one. So we encourage the teams to present their ideas to each other, get feedback, ask questions of each other as well. And what we're looking at there is their, their ability to be a constructive part of a cohort. We do see our intakes as cohorts rather than just individual startups. There's a lot of learnings and development that can be generated from your peers within that, within that cohort. We do want people to be energized by that and to also be motivated to support others who are there with them. Others have remarked and questioned me on the fact that obviously everyone at the the bootcamp is competing for a place on the program. Does that make for a competitive environment? How does this play out in reality, given that, that fact pattern? We're very clear with the startups that we've already scored them on the basis of the, the application form and an initial assessment has already been made. This allows us to get to know them better, allows us to round out some of the, the areas that maybe we you know, don't have full clarity on yet. We'll make it very clear that this is not an element where we're scoring you every second of, of the day. And then I think there's also something about the climate change space itself. And our entrepreneurs have remarked on the fact that this space is bigger than just themselves. And everyone there, yes, is tackling climate change from a different perspective, but the, the broader end goal is the same across all of the, the startups. So I think that generates the spirit of camaraderie of collegiate kind of mindset inevitably and invariably we found everyone has been quite supportive of each other and then day two is a day where we then get the teams to present their business model canvas to all of the startups to to us and it gives us an opportunity to then engage in further q a with the with the startups so Yes, that's the way we select the entrepreneurs. At the end of the bootcamp, we will have a final group of 15. We will then communicate that to the startups. And then normally within a week, they are onboarded and part of the greenhouse. So that is very good and detailed explanation of the process of selection, which I must admit is little different from others. The next question is, of course, what do you offer them? And what is your program like? Absolutely. For us, I think it's important to mention something that we haven't discussed so far. And that's the fact that we are a, an equity-free program. So through our support for the startups, we will not take any equity. We will not look for any IP ownership. We will not look for any royalties or any revenue share at all. So our principal and sole motivation is to increase the pipeline of early stage climate innovations and help them progress 
over the, the period that they're with us on the greenhouse and hopefully during and by the end of that journey, support them to get to the point where they are able to take on commercial investment and achieve the confidence of those investors. In terms of what we offer, I would say that in itself is part of the proposition. So, you know, that's attractive to many of the best entrepreneurs out there who will sometimes question the value that an accelerator might provide for the equity that they're giving away. At least it forms part of their decision-making process. With us, that's not something they, they have to worry about or contemplate. That is a significant factor, I think, the type of people that we attract. We also offer them up to £20,000 of grant funding during their, their journey with us. So startups will be with us for 12 months and we will issue a £10,000 grant at the point that they join the program. And then at the midpoint of the program, and I'll come back to this, we will conduct a review, assuming that's successful, issue the, the second £10,000 grant. In addition, in terms of the main framework of the, the program, it's a combination of very, very bespoke support and cohort level support. So the bespoke support largely comprises of one-on-one sessions that run throughout the 12-month duration of the program. That's largely led by me. So I will become effectively their main sounding board or their main advisor or mentor, whichever way you want to, to look at it. At the beginning, I will have very, very frequent and scheduled interactions with the startups. And then over time, that will space out and become slightly less frequent until you get to the the end of the program, at which point maybe I'm seeing them a couple of times a month, whereas at the beginning, I'm seeing them almost weekly um, to get to know them and provide support. Those sessions are bespoke in the sense that it's solely focused on that specific startup's stage of development that startup's problems or challenges that they're going through at that time and providing advice and troubleshooting and making suggestions specifically for that startup and based on how they can move forward and and progress. On the one-on-one support, we also have a mentoring program. So that was a change when we started the greenhouse. We've now started to attract external mentors. And my view of the mentor scheme is that It allows the startups to another voice, which is not just mine, or voices. And typically those mentors are specialized in certain specific areas that the startups need support in. Whereas I will provide more, what I would call generalized advice in in lots of different areas. On a cohort level, we run a range of masterclasses and workshops throughout the 12-month period. And again, these have been based on learnings that we've conducted throughout the, the decade of support that we've been providing. I'd say that is a constant work in progress. We remain agile and we remain like a startup in many ways, whereby we will look at what the problems and challenges that the startups are facing. And if we identify new ones, which are repeated across a number of startups, we will think about, okay, is there any specific or specialized support that we can bring in to help with this specific issue? But they, in general, they will run in areas that most of your listeners will be familiar with when it comes to accelerators. You know, they'll be in the areas of pitching, they'll be in negotiation, in financial modeling. We look at other areas like marketing as well, grant writing and grant assessment. So there's a range of different things which we're, which we're looking at through those workshops. And one of the unique elements, I think, and I'll I'll come back to this, is customer discovery, where we have a specific workshop right at the the beginning of the the program. 
So just to round off the, the support, we also um, do what we can in terms of connectivity with the, the investor community. So we're constantly looking to develop and generate new leads and insights there. We have, again, the typical demo day, which most accelerators will, will have at the end of the cohort. But we've also instigated other forms of engagement with, with investors. And one of those where we've done four events so far is the Greenhouse Evenings. And that's a quarterly event where we invite angel investors or pre-seed VCs specifically to come in, meet our startups in an informal environment, get to know them. And for the startups, that provides a less pressured environment to actually meet investors, understand their mindset, understand the things that they typically look for potentially develop a relationship, which over time might develop into an investor investee relationship. And then given the time that we've been running, we have a very active and engaged alumni community. We, of course, leverage that as much as we can. You know, many of our alumni are kind enough to come back and give talks to our startups. So we have something called the Alumni Conversation Series, where pick specific themes to discuss with different graduates and give our current startups an opportunity to, to question them. And then we have hot desking office space at the Royal Institution in Mayfair, which again is a new initiative of the greenhouse. It's a fantastic opportunity for the startups. It's well located. It's where many investors themselves are based. It provides them with an opportunity to, to get together and work together. And then I'll just touch upon briefly the structure of the program. I've referenced a few of these points already, but the program runs for 12 months from start to finish. We broadly split the program into two phases. So phase one is what we call the, the germination phase. That is principally focused on customer discovery. And the motivation here is to ensure that our startups are developing a product that is in line with what the market wants or needs. It's about validating that whatever their theoretical problem or solution is, that is actually validated in reality. And they will go out and talk to potential customers, get objective validation for their idea. That then gives them confidence that the time and money that they might invest in, in prototyping or writing code is going to be time well spent and not something that they do in isolation, then go out to the market and in the worst case, find out actually there's no need for it or you know the problem doesn't actually exist. We push them hard on having many, many conversations. When they do the business model canvas, they will identify a lot of the elements assumptions at that stage. And the customer discovery process is all about validating those assumptions so that those assumptions become reality and are engaged and are based on um, real conversations that they've had. We will then conduct a review halfway through, assuming they've had the requisite number of conversations and that they have, to a large extent, validated their business model. We will then issue the second £10,000 grant. And then the second half of the program, the propagation phase, is focused on the startups commercially validating their proposition. So we want them to secure their first customer, even if it's in pilot form. And we want them to try to raise at least 100k in grant funding or equity funding, which will give them a good cushion to continue with what they're building once they complete the program. That is great. One thing that I wanted to pick up, Naveed, was on this mentoring thing. How do you select mentors? Because one criticism about the mentoring process is that mentors take a lot of time to understand the business that they're working with. Sandra, that's a great question and something we thought 
long and hard about when we initiated the, the initial mentoring process early in 2022. First and foremost, and I've been a mentor myself, that informed some of our thinking. We also spoke to other people who are part of our community to some insights as well as gauge from the startups what would be valuable and what would work for a program like ours. First and foremost, we want a, a certain level of commitment from the mentors that we work with. Each mentor that potentially comes on board with the greenhouse commits to supporting either one or two startups. They will commit to a minimum of two hours per month to each of the, the startups that they support. Secondly, the reason we do mentoring is to try and fill specific areas of need and challenges that we know the startups that join our program go through. We're quite focused on finding start on finding mentors that fulfill or have areas of expertise in quite specific categories. To give you an example of what some of those might be, they are things like marketing and communication, investment strategy and fundraising. It might be industry partnership and knowledge of developing partnerships within industry, technical expertise, both on the software and the hardware side, team growth and governance, because teams towards the second half of the program are starting to think about hiring. Some of them are starting to think about developing boards or at least advisory boards. Leadership coaching comes into it. Again, teams are getting to the point where they're starting to think about their company culture, starting to hire new people, and leadership becomes something they start to focus on. Innovation frameworks, this is something which will apply to fewer of the teams by that point, but bear in mind that a number of our teams do have to pivot or do have to iterate based on the customer discovery feedback. So it does help them to stay aligned to a framework that will allow them to iterate efficiently and pivot efficiently when moving forward. Same applies to things like design principles, which is something we look at, go-to-market strategy, especially as the startups are now trying to get their, their first customers on board, and other areas like financial modeling, IP and patents, which are consistent across startups as a challenge, but maybe something they are you know, working on for, for the whole time. So skill sets are, are important, making sure that they fulfill specific need that we need. We like them to have had prior mentoring experience that for us makes it easier to gain confidence. Okay, you know, they'll be able to get up to speed quickly. They typically have an idea of what the startups, what their ways of working are like, and they have a good understanding of what the, the mentor-mentee relationship is like. We're very conscious to communicate to the mentors that it's the startups that we're concerned about. We're all here and the mentors need to be here purely for the benefit of the startups. It's obviously great if the mentors get something out of it as well. And obviously very often they do. But first and foremost, we're here for the startups. They're not here for us. We have no ownership in the startups. We have no economic interest. So it's all about helping the startups move forward. And I'm pleased to say that the mentors we have on board definitely buy into that spirit. Many of them will continue a longer-term relationship with the startup if there is a mutual desire to do so. But we're also very careful not to turn away those that haven't had prior experience. The great thing about the, the climate space is we get a lot of incoming messages, a lot of incoming calls, even knocks on the door in person from people who want to pop in, look at what we're doing. They have established a successful career in an area which isn't related to climate, but they now want to bring their skills and apply them in ways where they feel like they're, they're adding value. And climate is often top of the list for many of these people in terms of motivation. They want to see what they can do about climate change. You know, we will invite those people in as well and um, make them part of the community. And I think finally, but most importantly to mention here is that we as the, the greenhouse program are not picking the mentors for, for the startups. 
and that's quite important to to reflect on so anyone who comes on board our program as a mentor is not guaranteed to be mentoring a startup and at the same time we do not force our startups into having to have a mentor or taking on a mentor so it's all about what works best for everyone involved and to facilitate that we run a mentor matchmaking process which is a, a half-day event where we invite all of our mentors into the Royal Institution. We invite all of our startups there. They effectively engage in a, a speed dating exercise. Groundwork has been laid for that exercise. You know, we share profiles of the mentors and the startups with each other, but they get 10 minutes each to spend time getting to know each other, getting a feel for, for the personalities, asking questions. And then at the end of that process, both the mentors and the startups will submit preferences of who they would like to work with or where they feel like they can add value and we will then execute a matchmaking process where we will then match together based on the preferences of each side at the end of the day if there isn't a an obvious match for a specific mentor we will communicate that to the mentor we will still keep them on board because there might be ad hoc support that startups need at some point which the mentor could help with but we won't assign them to a startup. And all our mentors also appreciate and respect the approach that we take there. Right. And as we are trying to understand you, you mentioned that you rekindled the innovation exercise and launched it under the name of the Greenhouse with a new set of supporters. So maybe you should mention their names at this point of time. Yes, absolutely. And of course, you know, without them, we wouldn't have a funded program in the way we do. So we're extremely grateful for, for the support that we've had. From a financial perspective, it's been principally HSBC. This has been part of overall framework of support for climate change and climate change innovation. And HSBC made a significant commitment a couple of years ago to invest, a, allocate a significant amount of capital in that space. Some of that was kindly allocated to the program that we run and will support us until at least the end of 2024. We have also been supported significantly by a grant from the European Regional Development Fund. And that again has been core funding for the program, has allowed us a significant amount of flexibility in terms of what we've been able to offer to the startups. That has also funded a huge amount of work in the broader center for climate change innovation that we've set up. That's a grant that will come to an end next year. We've also had direct support from the Mayor of London through the Greater London Authority. There, we've had funding for, in particular, interns and internships. And we've been able to essentially provide effectively vouchers for our startups to work with interns that stay with them for a approximately 13-week period and really help them in that transition from being a team comprised solely of founders to one that is transitioning to a team where they will inevitably and eventually hire external full-time staff and start to build up their team. And the interns provide a great transition point for them. And then we've had some funding from the, the Prince Albert of Monaco Foundation as well, which has supported a couple of startups on the program directly. That comprises the majority of the, the financial support. And as I mentioned, we've been extremely grateful. We've also had lots of in-kind support from lots of actors from within the ecosystem. Slaughter and May have been providing really interesting legal support 
some of our startups, um, Mathis and Squire, who provided a lot of IP support. We've had Catherine Lee providing accounting support, Ready and Gross on account on IP as well. And there's been many of us who come to us and offered their um, their support. And then, of course, the Dementors who we've we've talked about are a very important part of of our support network. Excellent. We have come to the end of the first section and I'll kind of summarize some of the key takeaways of your uh, business, if I may. And I think one interesting thing about what we heard you say, Naveed, is that you have a one-year program, which is obviously pretty long, and you have a fairly clear sense of what you want to see startups achieve at the end of the year. You know, $100,000 of seed angel funding, at least a first customer, and so on and so forth. To me, you know, as I heard you speak, you almost work backwards from there. You know, you kind of develop a cohort level programming and then mentor support that it will help entrepreneurs reach that goal. One, another interesting thing which I probably don't hear other incubators say so clearly is, is the amount of support you yourself spend with the companies. Often investment managers are managing the project but you obviously spend a lot more time with the companies themselves, which is, of course, quite unique. You know, I think it is wonderful that towards the end you mentioned all your supporters and this is incredibly great. We all must support them from the climate tech ecosystem. But I also found it very exhilarating to hear that people with a lot of experience come in popping into your door. And to me, that's really, really very fascinating. That's kind of my takeaway from this first section. Your takeaways are very accurate. It's interesting to get your perspective. Now that we have laid out the background and the processes, let's just talk about the success that you've achieved. Should we start by talking about the number of cohorts? You already alluded to this. You started in 2020 in this new avatar and the number of companies. Yes, absolutely. And if you don't mind, Sanjoy, I may just reference some of the, the history as well, because I think it's important to share that in terms of the, the legacy of what the program, including the, the previous iteration, has achieved since 2012. Absolutely. So between you know 2012 and the, the initiation of the, the greenhouse, we had supported about approximately 90 UK-based pre-seed climate-focused startups. In 2022, 80% of those 90 were still actively trading. Of those 90... 68 teams graduated and when we say graduated it means they achieved that target of raising at least a hundred thousand pounds of investment while they were on the program or grant funding many of them also raised that funding later but 68 of the 90 did so within that period and of those 68 64 are still actively trading which is about a 95 percent success rate in terms of those being ongoing concerns. We know those 64 have raised at least $700 million of equity funding. In reality, the number is actually significantly higher because some of those investments haven't been disclosed. And there's also a whole load of public funding they've raised, which isn't included in in some cases in those numbers. It may be closer to a billion dollars in, in our view. They're now operational across over 25 countries around the world. They're employing over a thousand full-time staff. You know, they've gone on to, in our view, a very, very wide range of, of different impacts out there in the, the world. And we feel now that's going to increase in an accelerated way because those companies are obviously increasingly mature. 
there's a greater focus on the, the climate space. So that's a bit of the, the legacy, and that's a, a continuing legacy because, as I mentioned, you know, the majority, almost all of those companies are still active and actively trading. Coming on to the greenhouse, we have recently just accepted our fourth cohort of climate innovators, and we took approximately 15 teams in, in each of those cohorts. Cohort one joined us in January 2021. Cohort two in July 2021, cohort three in January 2022, and cohort four in September 2022, because we've now shifted the, the timetable slightly. Cohort five will join us in late March 2023, and applications for that will open in, um, in December 2022 for anyone who's listening and, and may want to apply. And so that's 60, approximately just under 60 startups that have gone through the, the greenhouse program so far. And the, the majority of those are still actively trading. There are two startups who have ceased trading from within that community, but the, the majority of them are, are, are still, still active at the moment. Um, and many of them have gone on to have great successes already raised. We've continued with the success rate we've had in previous years, which is between 60 and 70% of each cohort will hit that 100k target during the 12 months. That was hit in cohort one, it was overachieved in cohort one, actually. The same in cohort two, we overachieved from that perspective. Cohort three feels like it's on target, there are a few months to go. And then cohort four is, is obviously still uh, relatively new. Well, these are really very heartwarming numbers. What everybody wants to hear about is some stories, right? So tell us a little bit about some of the companies. You can pick anyone from your current cohorts, which you started during the pandemic, looks like, yeah. or your previous legacy. Stories would really help. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I'll try and keep it to perhaps some of the, the greenhouse startup. Yeah, I think every startup has a story. For me, the amazing thing about my role is just a diversity of startups I, I get to support. Diverse in so many different ways. Diverse in terms of gender, racial background, the educational background of the, the startups, the issues that they're tackling, the way that they're approaching different issues, the personality of the teams. You know, there's a massive amount of diversity in so many different ways in, in terms of what we support. In each cohort, we have yeah a massive range of different different types of applications. I'll pick one from cohort one, maybe mention the, the Tire Collective. I want to mention them because they are tackling a, an issue which I had no idea about before I met them. And they are tackling the, the issue of tire wear from vehicles. And it turns out that tire wear from vehicles is the, the second largest source of microplastic pollution in the oceans. So it's a a huge issue, but one which has been underreported, underacknowledged, underresearched, and and underfunded. They are developing a, a device which basically fits behind the wheel of a vehicle and uses electrostatics to capture the tire wear as it comes off the wheels when you know vehicles accelerate and brake, which is when most of the, the tire wear takes place. Now, they came out of a joint master's program between the Royal College of Art and Imperial College. They were a team of four design engineers, 
and done very, very well in terms of their their achievements and milestones. It's a good story because they've been featured in lots of different ways and stories. They were very successful in the, the London Mayor's Entrepreneur Competition. Um, they won the, the Postcode Challenge Lottery. They were featured in one of the Earthshot Prize documentaries on Clean Air. They won the Dyson Award. They were a finalist in the, the Terracotta Design Competition. That's one thing in terms of you know, acknowledgements and, and awards, etc. But they've also really pushed on in terms of the technological development. They are on, I think, their maybe third or fourth iteration of their prototype. They recently ran on-field trials in Sweden and are now about to kick off trials in London as well. So they're very actively moving that, that forward. And that's going to become an increasing problem area because even with the transition with EVs, yes, you eliminate one form of pollution when it comes to fuel, potentially. But because these vehicles now have these heavy batteries in them, tire wear is actually expected to become a bigger problem. Therefore, their technology actually becomes increasingly important, even with a successful transition to, to electric vehicles. I'll come on to maybe a couple more stories. Serotech are a, another one. They are developing a carbon-neutral concrete. This is based on an innovation that they have developed, which effectively allows them to, to capture CO2 or to take captured CO2, effectively mineralize it and add it as an additive into cement and it can replace up to into concrete and it can replace up to 40% of the cement in any concrete that is that is produced with the idea that it will retain largely similar if not the same characteristics as existing concrete and allow them to significantly reduce the the carbon footprint that technology will will have and they as well have been successful in terms of finding massive appetite amongst potential customers when they did their, their customer discovery process. You know, they were one of the teams which I would argue found it easiest amongst any that I've worked with to, to open doors. They have received a significant number of grants, which is recognition of the, the work and the advancements that they've made. So just a couple of weeks ago, it was announced that they won the, the Obel Prize, which is a new architectural award and they will be in, in Denmark in a, in a couple of weeks' time, collecting that award at a, at a prize ceremony and won, also won a £100,000 award. But with that came a, a huge amount of publicity, which will help their, their onward development. And then I'll maybe reference a, a couple of more, more recent startups as well and just touch upon them superficially just to give a, a range of ideas that we were working on or, or supporting. So Deep Meta, which is another interesting startup. I love these startups where they're tackling big, heavy, what people may deem to be boring industries, but actually where the climate impact is very, very significant. And Deep Meta have developed or are developing a AI-driven software, which works with steel manufacturers. And it uses pre-existing sensors that are already installed on supply chains and manufacturing plants. It takes data from them. It helps to predict defects and faults before they happen. So it gives the manufacturers time to actually adjust the, the mechanisms and the, the machinery to avoid a, a fault happening in the first place. That obviously saves them money in different ways, but 
also has a significant climate impact because that faulty steel does not have to be resmelted and recast again. We have startups that are working on biocementation, biomaterials, again, a very popular area at the moment, bioplastics and biomaterials in general. We've seen lots of lots of innovations in. We have a number of teams looking at the fashion space, Radiant Matter, who are looking at biodegradable sequins and other alternatives. We've got Sages who are looking at extracting dyes from food waste. So they'll take food waste, extract color from that food and actually turn it in, into fashion dyes. Dye Recycle are looking at dyes from a different perspective where they're extracting dyes from waste textiles and then recirculating that dye back into the, um, the fashion supply chain. We have the Cool Corporation in cohort four who are taking captured CO2 and upcycling it into new value-add materials based on that, that CO2. We've got wave conversion partners who are generating wave energy using a very innovative methodology, which is not nowhere near as capital intensive as previous attempts at this space and is done in a, in a way where there are very, very few moving parts and where maintenance will be, will be much reduced, taking the failures of the space previously and actually addressing them and finding a, a new way to, to innovate going forward. And then a, a fun, but also very, I think, impactful one I'll mention from cohort four is Team Repair, where it's a group of engineers who are addressing the, the issue of, let's say, younger up-and-coming generations not having the same knowledge of how to fix things when it comes to electricals, but also other mechanical failures that maybe the, the old generations had. And they take toys, introduce defects into them, and then share them with school-age children. They teach them how to fix those defects. And then those children get to keep those toys for a month. They get to play with them. And they then return them to get a new defective toy. They they learn how to fix that, play with that for a month, and then repeat the same cycle again. Right. Now, all I can say at the end of this section is that if you ever write a book, it's going to be a bestseller. <laughs> okay. Good to know. Maybe I'll, um, I'll consider that at some point. Go to the last section of the podcast. And I think that what I'm going to pick up on is this 60 to 70% get seed investment. You know, just tell us a little bit about the seed investor ecosystem in, in the UK. Yes, great question. I'd say it's very active, but also very, very fragmented. It's an area where we want to support our startups as much as we can. But it's also, in my view, the most difficult element of the investor ecosystem to, to access. You know, when it comes to late seed, series A onwards, they're all publicly known institutions for the most part. There may be family offices in there as well who are a bit more under the radar, but mostly you can at least identify who you need to speak to. At the angel stage, that's just not the case in many instances. Yes, there are syndicates. Not to be critical of syndicates, I think many of them do, do a very good job. Many of them do operate quite institutionally. It is different to the way you might engage with a with an individual angel investor. With the, the startups that we support, I'm always conscious of giving them the, 
the encouragement to go out there and try and find these these angels and obviously help them where we've got some pre-existing knowledge and, and connectivity. The good news is, I think the angel investor community on the whole is very, very motivated by the climate challenge. The ecosystem is very active. There's people who, you know, haven't necessarily worked in climate or done a lot there, but, you know, on an individual level, they will assess the opportunity to have environmental impact and also make money at the same time, generate a financial return. For many of them, that's a no-brainer. I've spoken to some syndicates, spoke to some angel associations where they've remarked on that being a major kind of attraction in terms of the mindset that they, they go into the space with. I also think that, you know, the, the SEIS is not climate specific, but the, the SEIS framework is critical in terms of the the appetite that the angel investors have for investing in startups at this stage. Overall, it's not the easiest space to access. It's partly why we set up the, the angel investor evening sessions that we run, but it is very fertile ground for our startups. The first equity investment that our startups raise, I'd say in 75 to 80% of cases, maybe more, it is inevitably a, or invariably an angel investor that writes that, that first check. We're seeing more institutions of, of late, but for the most part, it's still angels. And for me, it's an attractive source of capital because they tend to be less rigid in terms of their investment time horizon. But also, it's a great opportunity for these startups to get individuals on board who may have specialized skills and areas of expertise, which could put them further on, on in, their, in their journey as well. Right, I mean, many of our audience would not understand the word SEIS, so you should explain that. Yeah, SEIS, and this is something that came up in the, the recent mini-budget, so it stays there or not, but it is basically stands for the, the Seed Enterprise Investment Scheme. It's essentially a tax relief for angel investors that invest in early-stage opportunities. The limit was recently increased, for, for startups and they were able to raise, I think the, the cap was increased by about £100,000. So it went from £150,000 to £250,000. It basically allows startups to go to angel investors. They need to get accredited or receive a, an accreditation to be SEIS eligible. And that involves them submitting an application. It involves them submitting a business plan or pitch deck. And it involves them presenting that they have essentially a serious investor who is interested in investing in that startup. And the great thing for, for angel investors is it allows them to get a significant tax rebate on the amount that they invest in these early stage young startups. And I think for SEIS, they're able to claim 50% or close to 50% of the investment they may put into a startup back on their tax obligations. So it's a very, very attractive proposition for them. Great. And you have been tracking VC investments in the companies even after the seed investment. And you have a lot of data, actually. Would you like to reflect a little bit about the type of VC investors who are investing and their motivations? For example, are they specialized climate investors? That's a question that always is on top of my mind. Yeah, it's a good question. I would say we're seeing increasingly more specialized investors come, come into the space. They are appearing both at the early stage, I'd say most frequently at the, the early stage, the seed stage in particular, but we're starting to see them come up at later stages as well. 
especially at the growth stage with many of the sovereign wealth funds and some of the, the big private equity houses. And there's also a growth in corporate venture capital, which I think is important to mention here. We're seeing many of those have a sustainability slant as well, partly strategically in terms of the, the nature of the business, but partly just, I think, seeing it as a good business sense when it comes to to investments going forward. I'm seeing more and more specialized investors come in and some of them are what I would call generic. So they will invest in any sector where they see the sustainability or climate linkage, but many of them are specialized. And the most frequent area of specialization I have seen relates to CO2 removal. Lots of kind of specialist firms who see CO2 removal as a target in itself they'll have criteria linked to the potential for a startup to remove a certain amount of CO2 per year, let's say five years into their development or 10 years into their development. That's a, um, a measure by which they maybe simplify or select some of the investment opportunities that they will consider. And then we see specialisms in the sense of some will stay focused on software only, software enabled innovations. And then others who are focused on hardware, but happy to see that spread in in other areas. I've seen funds who are specifically focused on just plastic, for example, and increasing the circularity of plastic within the, the ecosystem, which I found really interesting and intriguing. Going forward, I think we'll see more and more specialist funds crop up. I think we'll see the climate space kind of sliced and diced in a way into different segments. And specialists will crop up in different areas and we'll still continue to see generic climate funds as well. Just a final point to add there is what you might call non-climate funds are also increasingly investing within what we would deem to be climate-specific startups. This is, in my view, just inevitable. It's a function of the, the space, the global economy at large, that every single sector is going to have to decarbonize. In every single sector of the economy, you will find what you could categorize as climate-focused startups. You'll find these generalist or generic investors also investing heavily into climate startups, I think. One of the things about traditional VC investing, these uh, what you call general VC funds, is that their propensity to put in larger amounts of capital in single deals. You know, that's the way the economics of the VC industry work. Does that work with the climate industry? I was kind of interested in your opinion on this topic. Yes, you're absolutely right. There is absolutely a propensity to deploy more capital, particularly at the, the later stages. And yes, the economics of the VC industry, and in a way, incentivizes bigger funds as long as the manager delivers good returns. I'd say it wasn't just the fact of deploying more capital that has been a characteristic of the digital space in particular, but the way that capital has been deployed and contrast this with climate in a second but when you look at a lot of the digital startups who raised a lot of money and didn't end up doing well in many instances it was a case of raising more and more money to fund loss making growth you know this was the idea that put more and more money into a startup allow it to obtain more and more market share so that it eventually digital terms owns the market. Once it's done that, it can then easily convert the business model to one where rather than giving things away for free, you can start charging those consumers for that service. 
because either they've become too reliant on it or you've eliminated all the other competitors or the market dynamics have shifted in in some way and that startup can then start to generate profits and return money to investors now we've seen yes that can happen but i think it's more difficult than many investors expected in those cases we can now look back and say okay those larger and larger amounts of funds that were deployed were maybe not deployed effectively there's other issues with having too much money which we can maybe get into if we have time but i look at climate see things differently especially where we are working with or referencing startups who are building physical solutions so in the digital climate space that risk remains in some ways the same in my view i think on the physical realm it's a lot more difficult for investors to pump more and more funds to just sustain a, a loss making business simply because with a physical product your cost of production is so much higher than a than digital startup be a lot more difficult for that kind of investment mindset to sustain itself but these big engineering solutions need a lot of capital for them to actually make it to the market and for them to actually achieve the the scale to allow the green premium as it's been termed to to narrow and for them to to actually you know in many cases build factories or build pilot plants etc to actually deploy um deploy their solution at scale so i hope we see larger and larger deals in the climate space as well but i i hope we see them in a form where it's actually about easing the pathway for physical solutions to get to the market or software solutions for that matter it's about changing industries and building financially sustainable businesses and not where we're seeing loads and loads of money go in to allow loss making businesses to thrive that's something i would be of personally but yes you can get overfunding still having unintended impacts could be they're going into solutions which are are well intended but maybe not well informed that's always going to be a question mark as to if you've got a limited amount of capital to deploy what's the most effective way of doing it and then in this applies to any business but not deploying too much capital into a business such that you get the other classic failure points of a company starts to be less disciplined in the way it deploys capital and the way it grows its business great and the other worry i have is about the other incubators coming in you started by saying that in your early days there were few climate incubators and of course you also mentioned that the space in climate incubators is not saturated in any way but as you know more incubators come in do you ever worry that you know entrepreneurs have the incentive to move from one program to another picking up some money and then never really building a business it's happened before yeah. you know <laughs> yeah i'd say similar thing applies to grants in that regard where and competitions as you say where you're on a perpetual application train and just applying for lots of different things and getting money here and there getting recognition and awards and things without the, the business necessarily moving forward really good question first thing i'd say is i and we are not precious about in inverted commas owning our startups you know for me principal motivation is about supporting the startups and doing whatever we can to ensure that they are successful and that they go on to have the impact that they intend to have i have never excluded the idea that oh they made 
also join another accelerator while they're on our program. Actually, because they haven't given any equity to us, it, it actually gives them the capacity to join an equity taking program if they if they wish to. If they want to get support from other mentors or they've got other advisors, they take advice from them and move forward. Maybe haven't consulted me on a particular point. It does sometimes happen. If that happens, that's fine. As long as the startup's making what it feels are the best decisions in its best interests, then I don't care whose advice they take as long as it's well-intentioned, good advice, and it helps the business move forward. That's all that matters. That's the first thing. But yes, there is a risk that you do too much. So the one thing I always caveat that statement with is please do make sure that you still have the capacity to engage with our program and also with the new program effectively, as well as commit the requisite amount of time to your business. The same thing applies to grant applications. The same thing applies to competitions where I would say there is a time and a place for those things. And with competitions, the time and a place for that is largely, these are not rules, but these are, I say, a framework. These are largely at the beginning of your journey where you haven't really got customers to worry about. You've got your concept and the way in which you're going to change things and you don't have much to raise much development off the back of which you're going to raise money, yes, go for competitions, you know, put yourself in, you can win cash prizes, which can be game-changing at the the early stage, even if they're small, you can get recognition for free and create a profile, which again can be very, very valuable, but they take time, they require applications. And when you're a year into your startup, getting to that point, it may not be the best use of time, unless it's a significant amount of money or opens some significant doors for you. The same thing with accelerators. I think there's a there's a sweet spot in terms of the, the amount of support you should be going for. And if you are going to join more than one accelerator, then make sure that that second accelerator adds value that the first one perhaps doesn't provide. And that could be in the form of funding. It could be in the form of certain expertise that that accelerator has it could be in the form of some of the factors which differentiate it from the first accelerator that you may be a part of but think very carefully they do take more time than than you expect a business needs to focus on the core goals first and foremost and the most difficult thing can be to say no these opportunities arise and you look at them and you think yes i qualify the criteria are are there and they they work for me and you want to go ahead and make that application but yeah, you'd sometimes be worse off if you if you don't have the capacity to actually make the most of the of the opportunity that you that you go for. Well, that's in a very sage advice. And I'll just sum up this section by saying that what I heard you say is that there is you know fairly significant angel investing interest in climate startups, and that's where your entrepreneurs picking up their first checks. And of course, you're also seeing specialized seed investors, the early stage investors crop up. General investors are probably putting in money in the later stages. I think the point that you made about the difference between climate investing and investing in the digital space, where you put in money in a company and hope its competitors go away and creates a monopoly of sort. That's a very critical difference. It's probably worth a lot of investors also listening to that. And I think the final advice that you gave to entrepreneurs is about just being be cautious of your time and be cautious of where you are. I think that's very important for them to hear as well. 
with that, we've come to the end of the podcast. And I think, you know, you're starting your next cohort round. And I would ask you to tell people, you know, if they want to get in touch with you, how should they? Absolutely welcome more startups being interested, being um, curious about our program, wanting to join us. So the first thing I'll say is just feel free to email me at any time. My email address is attached to the, the text that goes with this podcast. We will make sure we come back to you. We will be opening applications for Cohort 5 in December. So please keep an eye on our website, which is in the notes. We will add a link to our newsletter so that you can be informed when our applications are open. If you subscribe to that and then when the applications are open, there'll be a form on the, the website, which you'll be able to download and complete. And we will also have a number of Q&A sessions within the application window, which will run from December 2022 to roughly March 2023. There'll be some Q&A sessions where you could join a Zoom call. You'll be able to ask me questions, meet some other members of the, the CCCI and ask any questions that you might have. Most appropriately, we will be running the cohort free demo day on December the 8th at the Royal Institution in Mayfair. If you hear this in time, you could also register to join that event and hear from some of our startups. And with that, thank you very much, David. It was wonderful hosting you. Great. So I hope that was helpful. If you like this podcast, do visit us on regainparadise.org, regainparadise.com. Uh, you can reach out to me on LinkedIn and you can also subscribe to these podcasts on Anchor, Spotify, Google, Apple and YouTube.